Would you open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 11? And it's kind of interesting uh, how we landed on this, this, <laughs> this passage. Um, I don't want you to think it was because of our good planning. Um, it, it, it was not. Uh, I was working on the sermon calendar and just wrestling with it and trying to, you know, if you're visiting with us today, we, our, our way of doing uh, preaching and teaching mainly is teaching a book of the Bible at a time, uh, starting in chapter one, going verse by verse until we've worked through the book, which is, you'll see in a minute why that's so important. Um, and so just trying to determine what are the sections we should teach and preach and how quickly do we feel like we should go through the book or how slowly do we feel like we should go through the book. And finally, I got through four months and I just sat back and I went, oh, oh. <laughs> it's, just, it's hard work for me. And, um, and then, then I had this thought. Oh my goodness, I didn't even look at the calendar as far as holidays and everything. And I'm going back and I go, oh, when is Easter? And I look to see what was there. And it's John chapter 11, where Jesus declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. So I want him to get all the credit for the scheduling <laughs> not, and not me. And this is why studying the Bible verse by verse is important, because I don't think we would see this if if we weren't doing Bible study this way. John chapter 10, Eric and Alan, if you haven't heard their sermons on John chapter 10, oh, you'll be blessed to go back and listen to them. Um, it's all about the good shepherd. And then there's an amazing connection between John 10, the good shepherd, and John 11, because I think you'll agree with me, when you most need a good shepherd, it's, it's not just when you, you look at the end of the month and there's more bills than there are money, or... You look at, at a wayward child or a, a worry in your marriage. The time we most need a good shepherd is that moment when we, we need to go from this life into death and what lies beyond it. Precious ones, that's when you need a shepherd. That's when you most need a shepherd because you need a good shepherd to take you to a good place to stand before a good God. And that's what we're going to learn about this morning in John chapter 11. So let's listen. If you're visiting with us today, um, when we turn to the Bible, let's remember, let's don't assume we just know this. We're not opening a newspaper here. We're not opening a blog. We're not about to read a blog. We're not opening an academic book. We're opening the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. A God who wants to speak to your heart today. So let's listen accordingly. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, 
so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, well, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and, and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, how he loved him. But some of them said, 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Well, Lord, I pray simply this, that all of us, by the time our gathering is complete, would believe that you are the resurrection and the life. Please help us, Lord. Help me in preaching it. Help these precious people in listening to it. And may it change our hearts forever. In Jesus' name, amen. D.A. Carson tells a story of talking to an elderly lady who had gone through so much suffering in her life, and she was going through another bout of suffering right at that time as he was visiting her. And he was trying to show just pastoral kindness and care and sympathy and empathy. And he, she said this to him. Oh, preacher, don't be sad. This is nothing that the resurrection won't fix. <laughs> I just love that story. But what I love even more is I would love for my heart to be like that lady's heart. Because I don't know that I'm a very resurrection-centered Christian. We talk a lot about being a Christ-centered Christian, a gospel-centered Christian, a cross-centered Christian, but shouldn't we also include in that that we're a resurrection-centered Christian? And I think that's what she's getting to. Does the resurrection of Christ affect your day-to-day -day life like it obviously was affecting hers? Does the cross and, and the resurrection both? So when we talk about the cross, you know, I guess we, we are implying that we're including the resurrection, but I just don't know in the culture that we're living in. I just don't know that we're seeing that as a complete package, so we probably should talk about that a little bit more. Does the cross and resurrection together make a daily difference in your life? When we read the text, I hope you notice that there really are three ways that God intends the resurrection to have a transforming impact upon our lives. And the first way the resurrection can transform us is that it can set us free from being a prisoner of the past. It can heal us from a history of heartaches. How many of us have struggled to trust God and his great love because of something that happened 
in the past. Listen, I'll have a cup of coffee with you about that. I, I struggle. I can struggle. Our leaders know that if I'm not regularly renewing my mind in the scriptures and in the Lord, and I just let my mind just kind of run off in a discretionary way to this or that, oh, it's so easy for me to go back to a, a horrible past, uh, a past where parents told me as I was growing up, we wished you were never born. I always used to wonder why my, my parents let me have an afro. <laughs> I, had a, I had a Michael Jackson afro, you guys. But now that doesn't even make sense anymore because this is a whole new gener generation who don't even know what a Michael Jackson afro is. Um, I had a big old afro. And I look at my pictures and I just go, why did you let me look like that? <laughs> just, not, that not that it wouldn't be good for some people. I'm just going... Because it was Afro, giant nose. <laughs> no wonder I, no girls liked me. It was just, um, but, oh, my goodness. So that, you know, I, now I think I know why. Because it, it gave them a good handle. When, when I got too big to spank, it gave them a good handle that grabbed my Afro. They, it was my dad. He balled up his fist. Instead of spanking me, he would just hit me as hard as he could, as much as he could, just in my arms, holding my afro and just beating, beating my arm. It's easy to go back and say, God, where were you during that time? And it's easy for that to rule my heart. Do you have anything like that? It's just easy for a past heartache to rule our hearts, or for us to be imprisoned by the past, by what maybe someone did to hurt you. It might have been a horrible sickness, maybe, or the unexpected death of someone you dearly loved, or, or the unexpected death of a child, or a, a parent dying while they're, while they're young. It's just so easy to question God's love for allowing hard and painful things to happen to us. Did you see that in the text? I think you did. Where was God during those times? If he really loved us, wouldn't he have been there to prevent the pain? That, wouldn't that be love? Wouldn't that be love? Or it may be that, that, that we're suffering the consequences of our own sins and find it very hard to believe that God could forgive me after what I've done. And my past sins are the shadow that constantly haunts me. Do you believe that the resurrection can fix that? That's what we're going to learn today. Second way the resurrection can transform our tendencies. We, we just, as, as church-going people, good, good church-going people, and you can be a genuine Christian and do this at times, I think. And I think a lot of people who aren't Christians do this. But we spout Christian cliches. <laughs> we put it on Pinterest. We put it on, we post it. You know, these little catchy little Christian cliches that do nothing to grow our faith, or give us strength to persevere through pain, um, um, or, or to declare Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, and that's the way I'm living. I'm, but these cliches are not shaping my heart like that. They're not informing me. The resurrection can transform our affirmations about Christ. Is that all you have? It, it just affirmations about Christ. You know what the resurrection can do? It can transform your heart to have affection for Christ and not just affirmations about him. Sinclair Ferguson says that too many people can talk about having a Christian creed, but they don't have Christ. 
They can believe some correct things about Jesus, but those correct things aren't ruling their heart. Instead, usually here's what rules our hearts. Let me see how many of our hearts are ruled by this other stuff right now. It usually revolves around something we are longing for that we think will make us happy. That rules our hearts. Or it revolves around something we're lacking that we think will make us happy. Or it's something that we might have right now, but we're scared to death to lose because we'll lose our happiness. That's what tends to rule our heart. And every, all the Christian cliches in the world are not going to help you with that. A third way the resurrection can transform us is by helping us to not just have some vague sort of wishful thinking about the future that makes no difference in our present lives. It will save us from trying to create our own idea of a happy future, only to have that hope deferred. Remember how Proverbs talks about a hope, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Anybody have that kind of sickness of heart this week? You're just about getting what you, you're on the cusp. You're on the very verge of getting what you think will be the, the key to your happy future. And right about, oh, again, this is, too, oh, I wish I had modern examples. I'm, please forgive me. There was a cartoon called Roadrunner and Coyote. Please humor me, just because you raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. So do you remember poor Roadrunner? You know, here's, here's, here's uh, poor Coyote. Here's Roadrunner, just me, me. Just the coolest roadrunner ever, right? And, and so he's just cruising. And he's just, you know, he hasn't even hit hyperspeed yet. And here comes a coyote. And he begins drooling because he's just about to get what he thinks he most needs to be happy, right? right? So here he goes. And he just, he dives. And you see the hope in his eyes. Only for roadrunner to go, me, me. <laughs> and he turns and jiggies and jaggies and goes faster. And, and poor roadrunner just smashes into a rock wall. Is that ever how you feel about trying to create your own happy future? That, that, you're, that you are trying to create it. And you, you're, you're almost there. And then you're just, have you ever prayed this? Oh, man, I hope I don't mess this up. For those of you who know my wife, Jan, she is the greatest treasure in my life next to Christ. And as we were dating, that, that kept coming up to me. I think that the Lord could use this precious lady in my life, and I hope I could be used by the Lord in her life. I hope I don't mess it up. Did you know that God wants to give you a hope that is unmessable up up <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Somebody spoke that language. That was amazing. That was amazing. You just heard the gift of tongues and an interpretation. <laughs> No, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You know what, guys? The resurrection can fix that. So let's go into the text and see how this happens. And the just main point of our, of our message is the main point of the text, really. Is it? Didn't you see that? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? In a way that is affecting how you're looking at your past how you're experiencing the present, and having a future hope that is not just staying in the future, it's actually invading your present too. Do you believe this? 
The first thing that Jesus shows us is the glory of God's love and how he knows what you most need. That's in the first section. There's the threat of death from chapter 10. Jesus was threatened with stoning. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes to Galilee. Mary and Martha and and Lazarus were in Bethany, just about two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus and Mary and Martha were just great friends. Um, uh, And Lazarus, they were all great friends. Jesus had spent time in their home. Um, And so just two takeaways. I hope you're already, already seeing it when we're reading the text. The first takeaway from this section is just how deeply Christ loves his people. So I almost stop when I say, do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus loves you? Because did you notice it came up three times? The one whom you love, right? Jesus, Lazarus, the one whom you love. Jesus saying, I just... He loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Later on in verse 30-something, it again says, look how he loved them. The text only talks about how much he loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, not how much they loved him. What's what's your confidence in the Lord? Is, Is your confidence, is your relationship with the Lord really founded upon how much you love him? That's not very good ground to stand on, is it? Because don't you have days when somebody's looking at your life, it doesn't really look much like you love him. We are so come and go, hit and miss, hot and cold in regard to our love for him. But it's not based on our love for him, is it? It's based on his love for us. That's what this text is starting to get at first. So this is going to be so important. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he loves you? Do you believe it? Oh, how would your life be different if you really believed it? Jesus perfectly knows what we need when we need it. So it's not only that he he loves us, but he perfectly knows what we need when we need it. Even though the timing in his mind and plan doesn't line up, with the timing of our lives. I love Tim Keller's quote about this. He says, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. I'm, guys, I'm, I gotta, I'm pretty simple. I, I really probably need to wake up every morning with this to just go, Lord, um, I, I believe you love me. The cross of Christ is my proof. And I believe you know me perfectly. You have the perfect plan for my life. So would you help me believe both of those truths as I go into my day? I think that text is supposed to grab us like that. I think that's what's supposed to be going on here. So Jesus loves Lazarus. Jesus knows he's sick. Jesus knows he will die. And Jesus knows that this illness, verse 4, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If sickness would bring about death, but death wouldn't have the last word. Amen? That's a, so it's, it's, there's going to be death here. There's going to be tears here. There's going to be questions why here. But death would not have the last word, nor does it for us if you're a follower of Jesus. Lazarus was sick. Lazarus died. 
that God and Christ could be glorified by showing the world that the Son of God had power over death and power over the grave. So Christ could be seen for who he is and loved and known for who he is and believed in and cherished and worshiped and trusted and obeyed. That's what it means for him to be glorified, to see him clearly in a way that compels worship. That's the glory of God, to see him clearly. And so you need to ask yourself, what is our greatest need? To Mary and Martha, Lazarus can't speak for himself, right? Because he's dead. He probably, if he could have, he probably would have said, uh, I'm, I've got a problem here, you know. But, but Mary and Martha can sure tell you what they feel is the biggest need. Heal our brother. Heal our brother. And that can just so fill your eyes, can it? Those kind of things can just fill your eyes as though it is a huge issue, guys. God is very compassionate. You're going to see that in just a minute. But it can just so fill our eyes and dominate us that we lose perspective on who he is because we're blinded by what we want rather than being open to learn about who he is. What's our greatest need? To be forgiven. Isn't that our greatest need? To be reconciled to God because of Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. His blood was shed to pay the price. He was punished as though he were guilty of every sinful thought that you've even had this morning. I just was driving here this morning. And, and I, I do have some officers in the crowd, so you can correct me, guys, if I'm wrong. But you know when the, when the yellow light is flashing? You know, I just... I. The way I treat that, don't you? I go, I go into the intersection because the yellow light's flashing and I'm going into the intersection so that when there's a break in the action, I don't have to start at the starting line. <laughs> you know, if, you got, if you see the cops starting to get their handcuffs out and, you know, um, <laughs> signal me, okay? Um, because I think that's the way it goes. And then when it's clear, I go. And I was sitting there today and I was running behind. And, uh, and I'm just... That yellow light is, and the person in front of me is just, no cars are coming. And I just, I do that all the time. I'm noticing now my granddaughter does that. So I'm probably doing that. I'm probably not being a very good influence. But I'm just going, and then I just go, Lord, I am so sinful. I'm self-righteous. Self-righteousness flows through my veins. Oh, God, I want to be changed. I want, I want love. I want patience. I want prayer. Maybe I could have been praying during those 23 minutes. I'm sorry. Maybe I should have been praying during that time, right? Anyway, so we, we need to be reconciled. That's what we most need. We need a new life. We need a relationship from God that is indestructible and undefeatable. That's what we most need. And Jesus knows that. And this is important to understand because then look what he does. In verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Um, Jesus loved Martha and her sister. <laughs> I think I just called Lazarus a girl. <laughs> Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So, it's really the word it's there for. Jesus loved them. Don't you think you should have gotten on the red eye? And get over there. You love these people. Or at least, listen, you, you healed that rich man's son. You didn't even travel. You just prayed. 
and long distance he was healed. But the scripture says, he loved them, therefore he stayed two days longer. It's not what I expected. I expected him to get over their lickety split. He loved them, therefore he waited two more days. He intended to glorify the love of God, though. This is, that's, he loved them. He's intending to glorify the love of God to meet our biggest need, not just the most urgent thing we're feeling at the moment, not just by giving us what we want when we think we need it. That's just not it. There's a greater purpose, you guys, to God's love than to give us exactly what we want when we want it and how we want it. Are you, is that the way, you've, the lens you've been looking at God through lately? I've been asking for this thing. It's a good thing I've been asking for. Why isn't he giving it to me? And your heart is getting harder and more embittered and because you just are forgetting he loves you. He knows perfectly what you need. How about you surrender to that instead of your insistence that you're the smart one? Maybe God wants to give you something better, like a resurrection. Jesus is going to Bethany only after Lazarus is good and dead. There, there was a superstition that your spirit could hover above you, above your body for about three days and, and, and kind of get back into the body and revive the body. And, and so Jesus is avoiding every hint of there being something manufactured or a phony miracle or anything like that in order to bring back the, the Lazarus from the dead. He was good and dead. He was good and dead. But we just tend toward a view of love that defines love as making me happy now. Welcome to our culture, right? Children are a great example of that. Dad, can you get me the newest edition of the video game Brain Destroyer? <laughs> you see what I'm doing there? Parents, you got that. <laughs> Brain Destroyer. Because everybody has it. And Dad, I know you love me. Uh, son, I really love your brain, and uh, I, I, I would like to preserve it. I, I would like to see you actually think a clear thought. And, um, Dad! Come on, parents. What do kids say? You don't love me! In fact, this was in my house at times. You hate me. Our world is wanting other people to condone their sin. And if we don't agree, if we tell them God has a better way, they cry out, we don't love them. In fact, Christians are the most hateful people they know. Jesus communicates to Mary and Martha, in effect, I love you and I love your brother so deeply. I love you and your brother more than you can possibly know. And I know what you most need. I know what is best for you, which is why I'm waiting and why I'm not giving you what you want when you wanted it, but I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you what you most need. And what we most need is that reconciliation with God. What we most, most need is not, is not just the, the, the happiness of a fallen life. It's the newness of a resurrection life. That's what we most need. And, and so love says you'll be more helped to hear my promise of resurrection and to see my power over death, then you will be to be spared this pain. And it hurts. Listen, I didn't enjoy telling my kids no. I hated it. But, but you know that, that there is a pleasure awaiting them, 
But they're going to have to go through some self-denial. They're going to have to go through some trust that dad and mom know better. And why are that? Why, what, what are we supposed to be portraying? Dad and mom don't know that much better. But we are in contact with the God who does. And that's how we're trying to raise you. And then he tells his disciples, finally, it's time to go. His disciples fear that if he gets anywhere near Jerusalem, they're going to kill him. Jesus says he, he's not going to die until it's the Father's time for him to die. So there's some sense among them that, that Jesus is going to bring about all this glory he's talking about. And somehow it's going to be related to him dying. They don't have it all completely together yet. Even Thomas says, oh, let's go die with him. They know that the only way this resurrection power is going to really translate into, into generations of people's lives is if he dies first. And that's what we're going to find next week as we go through the section. But so, so here they go. They're coming down to Bethany. And the second point is this. Jesus shows us the glory of his presence as resurrection and the life. So I want you to imagine, put, let's put on sandals here. Let's try to imagine 2,000 years ago. Let's try to imagine two sisters who were trying to nurse their dying brother back to health, waiting for Jesus to get there, because that's what we most need. And he never comes. There's no ICU. There's no antibiotics. There's no oxygen that he can be sustained by. There's no blood transfusions. There's no pain relievers like we have today. Death is always ugly, but I think it was probably uglier then. You go from breathing, and that, that turns into gasping, and gasping into gurgling, and still no Jesus. And then when Jesus comes, you can understand, Martha says, Here's the past, right? Haunting. It's already, it's already gripping her. If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. How can God be loving when, with what he's allowed us to go through? Being a prisoner of this kind of past pain can actually become an identity for some people. Be careful of that. It's a wound that won't heal it's this reason where you, you've, you've believed that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but there's still this low-grade distrust of him. And you, can, you know one of the ways you can see it is because when you're carrying those kind of hurts, you tend to distance yourself from other people. You tend to, you tend to try to be in control of your life. You don't want to be hurt like that. So you're, you're trusting him. You want him to get you to heaven. But he, you just, this is a terrible thing to say, but it doesn't seem like he's done a great job with my life thus far. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to be in control, and I'm going to distance myself from even other people. Where were you, Jesus? If you were good, you, my brother would have, wouldn't have died. If you were kind, where were you? If you're for me and not against me, where were you? Does your history of heartaches cause you to identify with, with Martha and Mary in this? And it's not that Martha doesn't believe at all. The text goes on. She says, but I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And I really think, guys, this is just Martha being a, like, a lot like a, the, way us, the way we do. We just kind of go on this religious platitude kind of thing. How, ready? God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. I try to watch people, not in a bad way, but I just, when that phrase is being used, I watch people's faces. And it's pretty clear that a lot of people who are mouthing the words are not being ruled by the truth that they're saying. 
And I think that's what's happening with Martha here. She just has this religious platitude that's not healing her heart. It's not healing her heart. And you can tell she really doesn't believe it because when Jesus says, let's move the stone, she gets involved again. And she says, no, no, no. Because let's use King James. King James is so fun here, right? Because Lord, by now, you know, who knows the King James translation? He what? He stinketh. By now he stinketh. Boys love that. They're just like, yes, the Bible talks about stinking. That's awesome. But you can tell she's not really believing this. So Jesus gives her a discipleship quiz in verse 23. He says, your brother will rise again. And here we go. Oh, well, she has this idea about a future hope, but it's not invading her present. Oh, I know, Jesus, he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But even here, her so-called hope of a future resurrection was not a living hope at that moment. Martha needed to learn that the presence of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and her future resurrection, all of those things would transform the way she viewed her past, give her a bold faith in the present situation she's walking through, and a joyful and certain hope of an eternal future in the presence of Jesus. But she just doesn't need to believe in something called the resurrection. And this is another takeaway, guys. This isn't just about to convince you that there is a resurrection. This is to convince you that there is a resurrector. His name is Jesus. And this is where Jesus comes in with the answer to the quiz. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't just need the resurrection. You need me as the resurrector. He is the resurrection, and he is the life right now. This is in your notes. Bruce Milne, I think this just really captured this well. The life he gives is nothing less than the indestructible life of the resurrection, the very life of the deathless God himself. Resurrection life with triumphs over death is not confined to the distant future but is present here and now in him who is the resurrection, the embodiment of the promised life and salvation of God. Read that five times today, okay? He is the resurrection. In other words, he gives eternal life after death, and he is the life right now. In other words, he gives eternal life before you die. So you don't have to fear death because eternal life is after you die. But even right now, you can have confidence and peace and joy that eternal life began the moment you breathed, Jesus, forgive me. He's forgiven me. My new life has already begun. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, even though you will experience a physical death. And here's the, the, there's a, the, the, a little bit of theology here, because the scriptures, when we went through Revelation, we saw this. There's something called the second death. The first death you shouldn't worry about. It's the second death, meaning the eternal punishment that someone will receive for rejecting the loving offer of salvation in Christ Jesus. You're rejecting eternal love, eternal wisdom. And so there is an eternal judgment that falls upon those who reject him. He who dies, yet shall he live. 
So it's this promise that there won't be a second death. There will be an ushering to the throne of grace where you'll behold his smiling face forever. That's what, that's what awaits you. And that's what Jesus shepherds you to, to have that experience. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die eternally, even if he dies physically. And so Jesus wants to see if the hope of a future resurrection is invading her present life with hope. You know, he says, your brother's going to raise. She says, well, I know there's a, a future resurrection. I think you'll be blessed by what Tim Keller says about this. This is in your notes too. The resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future, but they have a hope that comes from the future. I'm going to read that again. The resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future, but they have a hope that comes from the future. The Bible's startling message is that when Jesus rose, he brought the future kingdom of God into the present. Oh, that's awesome. In the resurrection, we have the presence of the future, not fully, but we have Jesus, the eternal son of God. He is the promise of the future, and he's invaded our lives now. Isn't that good? The power by which God will finally destroy all suffering and evil and deformity and death at the end of time has broken into history now and is available partially but substantially now when we unite with the risen Christ by faith. That future power that is potent enough to remake the universe oh God, comes into us. You start to see why a good resurrection can fix your history of heartaches. Your present impotent Christian cliches that are not helping your faith or changing your life. And some vague wishful thinking about a better tomorrow that's not doing anything for you today. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Nothing will be the same, precious one, if you believe this. This will transform you. So would anyone conclude from your life and lifestyle that you have a cross-centered and resurrection-centered life? Could your life only be explained by that? Too many times mine can't. Does what you believe about the cross and resurrection explain to others why you prioritize Sunday and why you're raising your kids that way? How you live on Monday. That's, that's pretty important, <laughs> right? How you raise your kids, why you say yes to what you say yes to, and why you say no to what you say no to. How you steward your singleness, how you love your spouse, how you share the gospel with others, how you respond to being sinned against, how you respond to rejection or correction. Would anyone conclude from your tears or from your hopes, from what you cry about or what you laugh about? Could anybody say, that person is centered in the cross and resurrection? There's no explanation for that life. That life could not come from this world. That life had to come from outside this world. And that's what we want. Isn't that the reason for the hope that's in us, right? So in the midst of her sorrow, something changes for Martha. She says, I believe. <laughs> I love this. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
And look what happened. It's no longer the restored life of Lazarus that she thinks she most needs. Do you see it? Do you see it? It's Jesus that she most needs. And she's seeing it now. She's seeing it now. It's the resurrection life of Jesus that she most needs. The third part of the glory here, and these last parts are a little bit shorter. So that Jesus shows the glory of his passion to identify with our feelings of heartache and hatred because of death. Believing that Christ is the resurrection and the life will give you hope in this life and, and in the next. But it's not a guarantee that you're not going to suffer. We have people in our precious congregation going through really hard things. And our, and our hearts should be moved by the hard things they're going through. But it's not an indication that God doesn't love us. It's not an indication of that. It's not going to keep us from sorrow and suffering. So Jesus, is, Jesus promises this. Not only will he give you hope, I'm going to come and I'm going to identify with what you've been feeling. And I'm going to give you compassion that will heal your heart. Let's, do we see that in the text? I think we do. He promises his comforting presence to be with them and he's able to identify with your weaknesses. Don't you hate death? When I'm visiting somebody who has some sort of, of illness that looks like it's going to move toward death. I, I visit them. I try to love them. I try to encourage. I try to be a listener. I try to be a comforter. Oh, when I leave that, that bed, that room, sometimes I get in my car and I yell. I hate death. I hate cancer. I hate Alzheimer's. I hate those things. Is that okay? Is that okay? Well, yeah, we're going to see in the text. If it's, if it's addressed properly, it's okay and directed properly. Um, God, God identifies with our tears and our sorrow and our sense of loss. And it's not just a sympathy. It's, it's meeting us where we are, but it's giving us strength to, to endure it and to go through it. So Mary enters the scene and she asks Jesus the same question. If you were here, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And, and Jesus gave Martha the truth of the promise that he's the resurrection and the life. That's the gift of glory he gives to Martha. Here's what he gives to Mary. He gives to Mary the gift of his tears. That's what he, he gives to you. If you'll open your life to him, he'll come and com his, his compassion and his love will heal you. Some new relationship's not going to do it. You're probably going to get hurt again. Some new job's not going to do it. Some new church is not going to do it. Jesus wants to step into your sorrow and meet you where you're weeping and meet you where you're angry and then save you from it. Deeply moved means angry. It means he's infuriated. He's not mad at Mary or Martha or the people mourning. He's angry at death because it's the final enemy. And he's angry not just to what it brought Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's angry because of what it did to Adam and Eve and, and Abel being killed by his brother Cain and the murderous rampages throughout history and the death of baby boys at the time of the birth of Moses and the death of baby boys at the time of the birth of Jesus and Hitler's murders and Stalin's murders, ethnic cleansing, blood-stained floors of classrooms and churches. He hates the enemy of death he hates it Alzheimer's and cancer and babies lost to abortion and miscarriages he hates it and it's appropriate 
for us to also, with our eyes on him, knowing he conquers it. And then it's followed by another emotional outburst when it says, Jesus wept. And this is, I think ladies use this more than guys, but ugly crying. That's a polite way of saying it. It's that crying where you're just sobbing and the moisture is not just coming out of your eyes. <laughs> it's coming out of your nose and it's just ugly. That's really what the text is saying. That's how deeply identified he is with your sorrow. And you might say, why? Because he's just going to raise Lazarus in a couple minutes. And Jonathan Edwards wrote a, a funeral sermon when he's 17 years old. This is 17-year-old Jonathan Edwards. And here's what he says. Here's what he thinks that, that I think it's a pretty good thought. He says, Jonathan Edwards said that Jesus knew he was going to raise his friend in just minutes, just a few minutes later, you know. But yet he cries because even though he knows the absence of Lazarus is temporary, it's still real. And there's, there's people that... Uh, that in my life, friendship, pastoring, I've lost in this last couple of years. I know they're with the Lord in heaven, but their absence is real. And Jesus' presence is more real. And his comfort is more real. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Not many passages in the New Testament are more wonderful than the simple narrative contained in these verses. It brings out in a most beautiful light the sympathizing character of our Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us him who is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him is, is able to feel as he is to save. You're never going to find that in Hinduism or Buddhism or New Age thinking or philosophy. Atheism sure ain't going to get you that. It shows him who is one with the Father and the maker of all things, entering into human sorrows and shedding human tears. He knew perfectly well that the sorrow of the family of Bethany would soon be turned into joy and that Lazarus in a few minutes would be restored to his sisters. But though he knew all this, he wept. And he's crying with you as you are walking through a temporary but real absence of the people you love. And last, here we go. I almost want to start playing Rocky. So here's the last part. Jesus shows us the glory of his power over death. So he comes to the tomb. He's deeply troubled again. Here's that anger. There's that infuriation again. But this time it's like a warrior ready to, to defeat the enemy. Roll away the stone, Martha. It's going to smell. <laughs> You guys, I love the Bible. It is so real. I so relate to these statements because I can just be on the spiritual high and then I say something that is dumb as dumb can be. Isn't it good that God's just not going like this all the time? Somebody told me God could have the flattest forehead ever because he's just going, oh, oh, I can't believe what you're saying. Roll away the stone. And then he says to Martha, oh, Martha, Martha. <laughs> Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? You'd see the glory, 
of God. And Jesus prays. And, and it's obvious he's already been praying because that, that's in the text. And then he says, I'm praying publicly so that, that the people could see the mission God sent me to do, to defeat death, to reconcile sinners with the holy God. In verse 43, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Really, you could really translate it in two words. Lazarus, outside. I love that. <laughs> I, I, I could just get, or you know, maybe in our vernacular, Lazarus, get out here. Get out here. Verse 44 says, and the man who had died came out. Parents, wouldn't you love to have that power over your kids? <laughs> Wake up. Get up. Get to breakfast. Get in the car. Wouldn't you love? I'd love to have that power over myself. But first, here's what I hope you see first in this picture of Lazarus rising from the dead. I hope you see a picture of how God saves people. Not just saves Lazarus from physical death. You know, you really see a picture of salvation in this. Here's someone dead in sin, in transgression. Remember, Jesus knows his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. Good thing he said Lazarus. <laughs> because that's what the Puritans and all those guys used to say. They said, if Jesus would have just said, come out! <laughs> I mean, everybody's rising up from the dead. That's going to happen. The revelation says that day is coming when all the dead will rise. But it's just Lazarus this time. You guys, that's how you got saved when you heard the gospel. You were raised out of your dead, sinful heart, your selfish existence, your Jesus-denying rituals and your pursuit of, of, of created things to be eternal things. Oh, my goodness. And out of the blue, you hear the gospel. And yesterday, you've never heard this voice before. And then a day changes. The gospel's presented. And your heart is melted. Doesn't it, didn't it feel like that? It, I, I'm alive. I didn't even, even pray yet. I feel I, there's something happening in me. But what does the life do? The life comes first, and then what is? Then comes following. Then comes obeying. The life enters into Lazarus so he can obey the command of Jesus to come out. That's your testimony. How many of you were raised in church? How many were raised in church? Any of you guys, did you ever say this when you were, when you were growing up? That somebody says, hey, share your testimony with me. And you go, oh, it's really not a very exciting testimony. You know, Harry over there, he was on acid and, you know, addicted to porn. And, and he, maybe you should go talk to Harry. He has a really exciting testimony. There is no non-exciting testimony. We were dead in sin and transgression, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. That's the story. So we have a resurrection even before our future resurrection. And so that's, I hope you're seeing that. I hope you're enjoying that. And, and listen, I think that's the harder resurrection to accomplish. The future for a belief, all, all God's going to do is put bodies back together in, in an eternal way. New bodies, spiritual bodies, forever lasting bodies. To save me, he had to overcome my self-love, my self-glory, my enmity toward him. That was the harder one to do. 
Not that anything is hard for God. But do you get what I'm saying? We should be most grateful for that one. And then hopeful about the one that is soon to come. So here we go. Lazarus has come forth. So if you were marrying Martha, how would all of this affected your being a prisoner of your past? <laughs> Fixed. <laughs> That's healed. I'm whole. How would that affect your present? Oh, God's a living word. Are you kidding? I need this word more than I need bread. Oh, I love him and he loves me. Hope from the future? That, well, hope for the future? Yes, but I'm so glad that actually my Savior who's joined himself to me is actually hope from the future. That could be some movie. <laughs> right? Is that what you believe? Much better, not about Lazarus, but Lazarus is foreshadowing our resurrection. But much better than that, it's not foreshadowing our resurrection. It's foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection, which is far better than Lazarus's. Do you know why? This would be a good little Bible quiz kind of thing. So you ever wonder why there's a great description of Lazarus? Oh, my gosh. There was an old TV show called Carol Burnett Show. <laughs> This guy named Tim Conway would play this old guy, and this is the way he would walk. And the, the camera would just walk, and we, it, it was so uncomfortable. You're doing it, you're watching this for like 30 seconds, and you're so compelled by it. I mean, it's just the weirdest thing. So I just picture Lazarus, you know. I, I'm, I'm trying to get there as fast as I can, you know. Why does it go into such detail about grave clothes? And then why does, why does Jesus' resurrection go into such detail about grave clothes? I think there's supposed to be a comparison. Lazarus' grave clothes, Lazarus is just, he, it's, it's a resurrection, but it's just a restoration of a fallen life, okay? He's going to die again. He, he needs help getting out of those grave clothes because he wasn't raised a spiritual body, was he? He was raised a fallen body. Here's our good news. When Jesus rose again, did Jesus need anybody to unwrap him? No. J James and John, I think, aren't they the first two to get to the tomb? And they're looking in, and they're going, dude, is that his grave clothes in there? The, from the, what the, the, the theologians say is, is the way they looked is though he just passed through them. Because <laughs> he's the resurrection and the life. And then it says the headpiece was just neatly folded. <laughs> I love that. Why? Because Jesus was raised spiritual life that would never die. That's your resurrection too. And you guys, sometimes I just go, have I read my Bible? 1 Corinthians 15, 49. This is in your notes and this is how we'll close. Eric, you want to come on up? Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, well, we sure know what it is to be united to Adam, don't we? Oh, listen to this. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the resurrection we're going to have, far better than Lazarus's, because we'll never die again. Amen? Stand with me, and I'll give you this, this closing thought. Um, isn't it interesting? It's interesting how the Bible closes sections. Um, 
Did you notice that there, I mean, the sentimental part of me, I would have loved if it would have just said, and look at Mary and Martha hugging and kissing Lazarus and everybody's and Jesus is hugging and kissing Lazarus. And it doesn't say that because the focus is not supposed to be on Lazarus. The focus is supposed to be on the one who is the resurrection and the life. It's like when a, when a, when a, um, a guy is proposing to hopefully what will be his fiance. And, and you know, he, he gets on his knee or he does all these things and everything. And, and he opens the ring and he presents it to her. And she, I've never seen a bride do that. When I've been able to kind of be a, a, you know, fly on the wall watching those proposals, so fun to do that or see a video of them. I've never seen a bride do this. She looks and she smiles and she says, yes, I marry you. And then, I've never seen her then just push his face away and just kiss the ring. She has the bridegroom. She loves the bridegroom. He's made a promise to be with her forever. I think that's what happens at the end of the story of Lazarus. It's not that we, we get so taken by Lazarus' resurrection. We love the resurrector, Jesus Christ, the King. Sing.